pebble. So Anissa is standing up the back. Um, if you'd like to go out for the children's program now, now's the time to do it. As Yako was saying at the start of our service, welcome, especially if you're visiting with us this morning, a very warm welcome. It's great to have you with us and we hope and trust that your time will be a blessing. For those of you that are regulars here at Cornerstone, you would have noticed there's been a big change in what we're going to be looking at over the next couple of uh, weeks and months. I was going to do a series on the Old Testament book of Judges uh, and I had this really great series, <laughs> it sounds very proud, doesn't it? Um, that I had done previously, and I thought, oh, that'll be really, really good. But as I prayed about it more and more, I just felt really convicted that, you know, what's the purpose of this? It's not that you would think that I'm a great preacher or anything like that, but that you would come to know God and that you would come to know Him better. And so I quickly discerned that the best thing that we could do is look at one of the Gospels, um, and we're going to be looking at Mark's Gospel, because really the theme for this entire series is growing followers of Jesus. That's what we want to do and that's what we want to be. We want to be growing as followers of Jesus ourselves, but we also want to be helping others to grow as followers of Jesus, as we've heard about from Ray and as we've prayed about as a congregation this morning. So if you'd open your Bibles, please, we're going to be looking today at Mark chapter 1, from verse 1 through to verse 20. We could have looked at any of the Gospels. No, I didn't pick this Gospel because I was named after this Gospel. Uh, But I see really Mark's Gospel, and I know everybody has their favourites. Mark's Gospel is the action Gospel. Um, So Mark's Gospel, as we'll very quickly see, is it's always the movement from one thing to the next thing to the next thing is always happening. Each of the Gospels is quite different, although you'll notice that there's three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, which are called the Synoptic Gospels, which is just a fancy way of saying the similar Gospels, Uh, whereas John's Gospel is very unique. John's Gospel actually doesn't have any parables. Um, John's Gospel is unique in all kinds of ways. Instead of parables, it has signs about Jesus being the Messiah and the promised one of God. So we're going to be looking at Mark's gospel, and I'm going to read from verse 1 through to verse 20, and this is the word of God. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And so John came, baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptise you with water, but he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptised by John in the Jordan. 
as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. At once, the spirit sent him out into the desert and he was in the desert 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me. Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Would you please join me in prayer? Father, as we come and as we sit at your feet now, we pray that you would do that supernatural work of your Holy Spirit, that you would open our ears, that we would hear your your voice speaking to us through your word. And Father, we pray that you would be with me, that I would be a faithful ambassador for you. Lord, we pray that Most of all, Lord, that we would meet Jesus now through your word. That just as those first disciples heard him calling to them all those years ago, we would hear you, the living God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, calling to us through your word. Lord, grant us the obedience of faith, we pray. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, don't you just love a new beginning? A bit like Yako was talking about to the children before, there are lots of things that are exciting in life. It could be a new relationship. Uh, It could be a new job. It could be a new child in the family. It could be moving into a new house or a new suburb. Or then there's obviously the really, really, really big one, having a birthday or, you know, obviously a new baby. There are lots of different times in life where something new occurs. And while that can be quite stressful, it can also be a time of great excitement. How much more exciting, though, is it if you experience a fresh start with God? Because that is the most important relationship any of us can have, to truly know the ever-living God, to be reconciled to the Lord, And to know that we are in a right relationship with him. Well, the Gospel of Mark is really all about new beginnings. Starting at the very first uh, verse, we read this, the beginning of the Gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So it obviously involves something that's quite momentous. You get that sense from the very beginning. The word gospel actually comes from a Greek word, 
which was used in the ancient world, not necessarily in religious contexts, but was used whenever there was an important announcement to be made. It could be everything from the wonderful news of a victory in battle to the enthronement of a new ruler. In fact, you could go down to the local market and there would be, you know, like sometimes we used to have a little red light in Coles or Woolies saying that there was a special on for food, half-priced fish or something like that. That in the ancient world was a gospel. It was good news. I once read that the birth of Caesar Augustus was literally proclaimed as a gospel. For it was publicly announced that his birthday, this is what it was said, signaled the beginning of good news for the world. It's a phrase, it's phrased in almost exactly the same way for us here in Mark's gospel. Except here it's not talking about Caesar or the ruler of Rome, it's talking about God's king, which is really what the word Christ or Messiah means. It's the same thing means God's anointed ruler or king. The context in which Mark is writing about, though, is really significant. He's probably writing from Rome as the persecution of the emperor Nero breaks out. And Nero is blaming the Christians um, for uh, the, the fire that has engulfed most of Rome. Mark, though, is telling us that there is a true king in the world and that it's Jesus the Christ, God's true son. In fact, as Nero was burning um, Christians at the stake as lanterns in his own gardens or feeding them to the lions, the wild animals in the Colosseum, in just a little while we see that Jesus was also led into the wilderness amongst the wild animals as well. It was a comfort to the early Christians knowing that their king was going through exactly the same kinds of trials as they were. Now, if you take a look down at your sermon outlines, you'll see that there are three things in particular that Mark tells us about Jesus. You'll find this on the inside of your corner posts. The first is that he is the promised king. The second is that he is the anointed king. And the third, and this is something of a strange one, but I think probably the most significant, and that is he is a fisher king. Uh, I'm really looking forward to exploring this part of God's word with you all over the next coming uh, weeks and months because I really sense that the Lord is going to grow each and every one of us in our own walk with him, in our own discipleship with him. That's the key to not only Mark's gospel but to our entire lives, isn't it? The first point then is that Jesus is the promised king. Significantly, Mark doesn't tell us anything about Jesus' infancy or his childhood. Only Matthew and Luke do that. The strategy that the Gospel of Mark takes is to jump straight in and is to hit us with the good news. Yako mentioned before there are two other places where a book of the Bible will start with in the beginning. You probably picked the first one easily enough, Genesis 1 verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and significantly, the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Here we have something similar here. The strategy that Mark's Gospel takes, as I said, is one of action. 
It's one of immediacy. That's a bit of a thing with Mark. There is this compulsion, you might say, in everything that he's writing. Everything happens immediately. One thing after the other after the other. In fact, the Greek word for immediately is used 42 times in the Gospel of Mark. Whereas in the rest of the New Testament, it's only used 12 times. Mark's Gospel, 42 times he's telling you immediately this happened. The rest of the New Testament, that same word will only appear 12 times. And so that makes Mark's account not only the shortest of the four Gospels, but I think also one of the most action-packed. He just keeps bombarding us with information and events and teaching one after the other after the other. It's almost like he's overwhelmed with excitement of this good news. That's often how it is, isn't it? When we're really excited about something we're told about, we, we just are bursting at the seams, wanting to tell everybody about it. That's what Mark's like as well. It's a bit like, I think, one of those newspaper reports where somebody can't contain their enthusiasm for what's happened and they just gush with all of the different details as to what has occurred. That's what it's like when you read Mark's Gospel. He's just so amazed by who Jesus is, what he has done and what he has come to do that he just can't keep it all in. He just has to tell you everything that he's seen or heard it's one thing after the other. Mark launches straight in then and he tells us that the one whom the Old Testament prophets had spoken about and predicted has finally come. And can I just say, this is the reason I believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus because of the Old Testament. Because he fulfills so perfectly everything that God in his word said was going to occur. Remember the Bible reading we had a little earlier from Isaiah chapter 40? It's this really incredible passage because it speaks of the time when Israel would experience a whole new beginning with God. It says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. I think that really goes to the heart of the good news. You see, sometimes, you know, we can so wander from God that we think we're lost. We're completely lost. There is no second, third, fourth chance for us, huh? That I've, I've messed things up so royally that I could never have a shot at it with God. That's not true. With God, he's the God of 77 times 7 chances. He's the God that forgives and heals and restores. What a blessed hope that is. You see, that's the essence of the gospel. It's this wonderful news, particularly for Israel, that they were going to return from exile. She has been disciplined because of her sin, and we have a holy God who disciplines sin. But now the Lord is going to bring her back. Her sin has been forgiven and she's going to be gloriously restored. But then do you remember what it said next? This is the point Mark picks up on here as he begins his gospel. It says, A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness 
a highway for our God. Did you notice that? Whoever John is preparing for the, the, the one coming over the hill is the Lord God Almighty himself. I used to live in outback New South Wales and often we'd have these big cotton pickers go down the road and have to move them from farm to farm. It was a bit of a dangerous thing because they were so over-wide. If you didn't get off the road, you could hit the edge of them and people would get killed. So they'd have these little support vehicles, often these little, just these little trucks that would go ahead, often a ute with flashing lights on it saying, warning, there's something big coming. That's what John's doing here. He's saying there's something really big coming. In fact, the Lord's coming. So get yourself ready. Make your path straight. Get off the road, you might say. Every valley, he says, shall be raised up. Every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged places are plain. In other words, what's he saying? Repent. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all mankind together will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That was said seven, eight hundred years before Jesus. And it's happened. What God said would happen has occurred. Now, this is exactly where John the Baptist comes in. John is calling on everyone to repent. In fact, he's symbolically asking them to do even more than that. By washing people with water in the Jordan River, he's calling on them to be saved all over again. He's calling on them to come to God and be forgiven, to have all of their sins washed away. Because if you think back to Israel's history, you remember from the book of Joshua that when, the, when they went into the promised land, the Lord miraculously stood up the waters into a heap so that they could pass through the waters and go into the promised land. It was just like what had happened at the very beginning of Israel's history. Now it's happening again. Back then they had escaped from Pharaoh, out of Egypt, out of slavery, into the promised land. And now in exactly the same place, here is John and he's doing exactly the same thing. Except this time, he's not miraculously parting the waters, but as a priest, and that's who John is, as a priest, he's ceremonially washing the people with water as a sign of their purification. He's saying, you need to be forgiven. That their sins have been washed away. And so, as a result, they've been reconciled to Almighty God. The whole point of all of this, though, is that Jesus is the King that God's Word has promised. This is something that's quite unique, actually, in all the religions of the world. Christianity is the only religion to accurately predict or prophesy the coming of its central figure. No other religion, no other religion has done that. That's why I think it's so important each week when we come together for church, we have both an Old Testament and a New Testament reading because you can't really understand the one without the other. As the church father Augustine used to say, the New Testament is concealed in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is revealed in the New. The New Testament is concealed in the Old Testament and the Old Testament is revealed in the New. That is, the Old Testament explains, it foreshadows and it predicts the New. So Jesus is the promised King. 
the Old Testament scriptures predicted his arrival, and the New Testament scriptures confirm that this has actually taken place. The second point is that Jesus is the anointed king. This follows on quite closely from the previous point, but it expands and it focuses it in a really important way. You see, this is where um, there is this really great point that Mark is making here, which is really easy to miss. And that is, if you only look at verse, if you take a look at verse 10, Mark says that Jesus was coming out of the water and immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove. For some strange reason, the NIV leaves out the word immediately, um, but more literal translations like the ESV have it. The point is, though, is Jesus was immediately filled and empowered by the Spirit of God himself at the very beginning of his ministry. And it was divinely confirmed. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus was becoming God at this point, because remember in the very first verse of the gospel, Mark states that Jesus already was the Son of God. This is not describing Jesus himself as lacking the Spirit. It's actually for the benefit of everybody else. The verse that I really want to draw your attention to then is what God himself says when Jesus comes out of the water in verse 11. He says, From heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Now, if you take a look at your sermon outlines again, you'll see that there are three main passages that I directly alluded to here. Uh, we don't need to look them all up now, but they're actually, there are actually a few more, but because of time, I'll limit myself to these three. The first is from Psalm 2, verse 7. And it's where God describes his anointed king as being his son. That's a really important passage because the king in Psalm 2 is the one who is going to rule over the entire world. He's not just Israel's king. He's the king of all the world. The one whom all the kings and rulers of the world are going to bow their knees to and acknowledge that he has authority over them. The second reference is to Isaiah 42, and that's where the suffering servant is described as being the one in whom the Lord God or the Father is well pleased. Now, that's an absolutely massive thing to say, because if you're familiar with any of the passages involving the suffering servant, then you'll realize that what it's saying is that Jesus has come to earth to take upon himself the punishment which we deserve, that he will be a substitute or a scapegoat in the ultimate sense of the word. And the third and final reference, though, is to Genesis 22, and that's where Abraham is told to sacrifice his son, his one and only son, whom he loves, which is all the more incredible when you know that he was the child of promise the one in whom God said he was going to build his entire nation. And Abraham was willing to do that, we're told later, because Abraham believed that even then God could bring that child back from the dead. Not only that, but he'd given to Abraham and Sarah um, when they were well into their 90s and before 
And they hadn't even been able to conceive a child before that. So Isaac's birth really was a miracle in the true sense of the word. Thankfully, though, as we all know, he doesn't sacrifice him in the end, and God provides a substitute, a ram, in its place. The thing is, though, if you put all of these three passages together, then you get this incredible picture as to who Jesus is and what he's going to do. He's going to be a king. He's going to be a suffering servant that pays the penalty for our sin. And most of all, he will act as a substitute for us. And all of this is in fulfillment of what the Old Testament actually said would take place. Do you see? There is an incredible depth and theological richness to these three short sentences. Not only that, but you cannot also overlook the fact that God audibly speaks to everyone here from heaven. This obviously doesn't happen very much, even in the pages of Scripture, at least not to everyone at this, all at the same time, to the prophets or other uh, specially anointed servants maybe, but not to everyone all at once. The first and most dramatic time this occurs is in Exodus chapter 20 when the Lord gives the Ten Commandments. And it was such a terrifying experience that everyone who heard it happen pleaded with God never to do it again. They said to Moses, speak to us or yourself and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us or we will die. I sometimes think, you know, people that say, oh, well, I'd like God to speak to me to really believe. I don't think you would. And yet here we have God speaking directly from heaven in confirmation that Jesus truly is his anointed son. He didn't take this honor upon himself. He wasn't deluded. He wasn't crazy. This is something that God himself confirms from heaven. By the way, Mark makes a really neat point here when he talks about the Spirit sending Jesus into the desert after his, his baptism. The Greek word he uses literally is like cast out, ekbalo. It's used 11 times in Mark's gospel and it, and it literally says, as I just mentioned, to cast out. The Spirit is casting him out into the, into the wilderness. The really interesting or significant thing about that, though, is that every other time this word cast out, ekbalo, is used in Mark's gospel. It's used in relation to casting out a demon. So you could translate verse 12 as saying, the spirit cast out the son of God so that he would in turn cast out Satan. You see? And God willing, um, we'll see next week how Jesus casts out Satan straight away. Although ironically, the first place he does that is at church. He goes to a Jewish synagogue where he, casts out a, where he casts out a demon. But the first thing Jesus is immediately sent by the Holy Spirit to do is to go into battle with God's enemy. Now, that's a really, I think, incredible thing when you think about it because from the very beginning of his ministry, it takes on a cosmic significance. It's nothing less than a war between the forces of good and evil. In fact, 
There's another layer to this, and that is Jesus is becoming the true Israel. What Israel could never do, Jesus does. He is the perfect son of man, the second Adam, that's going to perfectly keep the law, to be tested and be without sin so that he could be sin for us, so that by believing in him, we might become the righteousness of God. I wish there was a movie that could be made about this particular aspect of Jesus' ministry, you know, with the special effects and everything being so good this day. I think it would be a really good, powerful illustration of Jesus' life. The third and final point that Mark tells us, though, about Jesus is that he's the fisher king. Now, this might seem like a bit of a mute point because it's so well known that Jesus chose mostly fishermen to go and be fishers of men. Uh, And maybe it's just a pun, a play on words. If they were builders, maybe he could have said, well, come with me and I'll make you build the kingdom of God. But if you were a Jew or an Old Testament believer who knew your Bible well, and you were reading what Mark said here, you in some ways wouldn't be all that excited because it wasn't that positive. And that's because the image of fishing for people in the Old Testament always involved judgment. We don't have time to look up all of the different references now, but if you take time to look up even some of them later on, you'll see how this was the case. Each and every reference in the Old Testament uses the imagery of fishing as a metaphor for God's judgment. And yet, in a wonderful turnaround of events, Jesus uses the metaphor of fishing to bring about salvation, to rescue people from judgment. He's calling people to go and catch other people so that they can experience a whole new beginning or a right relationship with God. That's the really great thing about Jesus. Not only is he the promised and anointed king, but he's also the one who goes fishing for lost people. He searches and seeks out people to be brought back to the Father. Can you hear Jesus calling you to come to him this morning? It doesn't matter how far you've strayed or how long you've ignored him. Jesus is calling on you to return. What does that mean? Well, the first thing it means is that you'll be willing to come to Jesus and be washed. That might seem pretty simple, but it's actually one of the most difficult things in the world to do because it requires having the humility to admit to God that you've sinned. That because of our actions, we've defiled ourselves and become morally and spiritually unclean. If we're prepared to admit that, we've done that, though, then we can know this, that this king who you've met this morning in his word will forgive you and cleanse you of everything. To forgive us of even the most disappointing moral failure. Flowing out from that comes the second point, and that is being forgiven always leads to change. That's why the prophet Isaiah says, Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level and the rugged places a plain. That's the effect that God's mercy has on us. 
It empowers us to straighten out those areas in our life that we know are crooked or uneven. If you've already accepted God's forgiveness, his cleansing for sin, then what areas of your life is the Holy Spirit convicting you of now that you need to make straight? The fact that Isaiah says that the hills will be leveled and the valleys filled in suggests that repentance will mean that we have to stop doing some things and start doing other things. I was talking to a young man just a couple of weeks ago and he was saying that when he came to Christ and was forgiven, he realised that so much of his time was taken up with gaming. Now, computer gaming in some ways is not that bad, but for him, he said it was a real problem. And so he came home and he said, well, Lord, if you really want me to stop doing this so that I can give you more of my time, help me to sell my gaming computer. And the next day it was gone. Because he realised that something else had captured his heart and his affection, his attention. Or maybe you have to stop looking at pornography. Or you have to stop being so judgmental and critical. But on the other hand, maybe you have to start making church more of a priority, God's word more of a priority, loving his people more of a priority, to worship with his people and to grow in your knowledge and understanding of his word. That would be a great way of starting to love God more, wouldn't it? Because you can't say that you love God and hate his people. Being a follower of Christ is an all-in commitment. It's something that requires us to make a radical response. There's a really great example of this, I think, in the book of 1 Kings. I've printed the verse out for you on the bottom of your sermon outlines. If you could just open this and have a look at this, I think it's quite powerful. It's where Elisha decides to follow the prophet Elijah. And in verse 21 of chapter 19, we read, So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the ploughing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people. And they ate. There's no going back now. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his attendant or servant. If you want to become a follower of Jesus, then that's the type of commitment you need to be prepared to make. Not that he will always ask you to leave your job or sell your house or car, but that you'll love him more than all of those things. That Jesus is your real and first love. That's the kind of response he's calling on you and me to make. So let me ask you this question in conclusion. Are you following the king? Or has something else got your heart and attention? Are you committed to Jesus more than anyone or anything else? Do you love him? Do you live for him, seeking his glory and praise? And do you seek, as we've prayed and heard about this morning, to help others to know him as well? Well, on that note, why don't we spend some time in prayer, shall we? Let's pray.
Oh, Father, we thank you for speaking to us through your word this morning. We thank you, Lord, that it's so clear and so powerful and so real. Because it's true, Lord. You are the true and living God. And we pray, Lord, that you will soften our hearts to both receive your cleansing and your forgiveness, as well as the courage and strength to follow you, to love you rather than anything else in this world. Lord, we uh, thank you for speaking to us through your word. We do worship you and we love you. And we pray that in our absolute weakness, Lord, you will meet us. And each day that your spirit will refresh us, that your mercy will be new every morning. And we'll know that in our experience. That we'll know how great your love for us in Christ, that you took the initiative to save us even while we were dead, to find us even when we were lost. Lord, Help each one of us to know more and more your love, your mercy, and your acceptance. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.